Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I have the pleasure of talking to both Lynn McBain and Dr. Richard Medlicott about the Choosing Wisely campaign in New Zealand. Dr. Lynn McBain is the Associate Professor and Head of Department of Primary Healthcare and General Practice at the University of Otago. She is also a partner at the Brooklyn Medical Centre. And in 2011, she was awarded the honour of the Distinguished Fellowship from the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. Dr. Richard Medlicott is a Medical Director at the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. He is also a GP from Island Bay in Wellington with a keen interest in IT, health governance and extreme sports. Welcome Lynn and Richard. Good morning Louise. Good morning. So Richard, we'll just pose the first question to you. Would you mind telling our listeners what the Choosing Wisely campaign is? So Choosing Wisely is an international initiative that's been put in place in a number of countries, including uh, the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, some of Europe, and of course here in New Zealand. Lynn, what is the background to the Choosing Wisely campaign being formed? Well, it was noted that um, there were circumstances, I guess particularly in the U.S. and Canada where it first started, where low value and inappropriate clinical interventions were um, being suggested for patients. So this has been put in place to try to avoid these and allow patients and health professionals to have well-informed conversations about the treatment options and therefore leading to better decisions and outcomes. In New Zealand, many medical colleges and specialty societies have identified tests, treatments or procedures that may not be uh, necessary based on discussion with the members of those colleges and also based on the evidence. So during this time, um, the Choosing Wisely program is working with the Health Quality and Safety Commission, Ministry of Health, Pharmac, Pacific Radiology and the Council of Medical Colleges as sponsors to try to help with this culture change. And Richard, who's involved in this campaign? The primary mover in this campaign is the Council of Medical Colleges, the umbrella group that represents uh, all of the Australasian and New Zealand colleges. Um, They're facilitating the initiative in New Zealand uh, as part of the commitment to improving the quality of care for all patients. The Council of Medical Colleges then brings through a number of uh, professions, including doctors, nurses, midwives, pharmacists, and and other professional groups. It's got some strong consumer involvement with two members of the Health Quality and Safety Commission's consumer panel on its steering group. And Lynn, how important and relevant do you think the Choosing Wisely campaign is to primary care practitioners? I think it is um, quite important because, of course, in primary care, we're the front line in dealing with patients and often considered the gatekeeper to secondary care. But also, I would note that it's highly relevant to secondary care as well. So it's a a cross-sector campaign that should be considered. Um, The evidence in Choosing Wisely is based on um, best evidence, Uh, The recommendations uh, that are put together by the colleges uh, do look at the evidence. So hopefully um, that does span primary and secondary sectors. And also the great thing is that there are resources available to help health professionals. So Richard, choosing wisely, we're using it now in our practices. How have you integrated it into your day-to-day practice? Well, I'd like to think, as we all do, I suppose, that we 
make sensible decisions uh, with our patients about the care they receive, um, both before the Choosing Wisely campaign started and now. So one of the concepts we use a lot, of course, is looking at um, local pathways, which are generally evidence-based and ask us to use resources wisely. Um, for a specific example of the Choosing Wisely campaign, I've put one of the posters up in my room, mm. uh, which gets patients to ask some critical questions about whether um, they really need this test or this medication, what happens if they don't take it and so on. And there's been some, some pick up from patients on that. And Lynn, what about you? How are you using Choosely Wisely in your day-to-day -day practice? Well, like Richard, I um, like to think that I practice um, uh, using resources wisely already, but um, particular examples might be uh, being really careful about ordering blood tests and being really specific about the things that I'm wanting to know about and resisting the temptation to add on other things just in case. And also, um, I think I do a bit more discussion with patients before I refer them on to consultants, maybe um, giving the patients the ideas that they can ask, that just because of their being referred, they do not have to uh, follow the exact advice. They can ask the questions. They can reach an informed decision with the consultant about whatever um, test or procedure might be suggested. Excellent. So let's look at some examples of choosing wisely in action in clinical practice. Firstly, a recommendation from the New Zealand Internal Medicine Society. They suggest avoiding medication-related harm in older patients greater than 65 years receiving five or more regularly used medicines by performing a complete medication review and deprescribing wherever appropriate. I wonder, Richard, if you could talk about this recommendation and just discuss some key points from the recommendation for our listeners, please. Sure. Um, look, this is a this is a critical recommendation. Really, we know that the elderly, particularly the frail elderly, are at high risk of hospitalisation, and medication is often part of that. And the studies that are done are generally done on younger, healthier populations, and then we extrapolate them into the older groups and. Yeah, we all know that we're trying to help our patients because they come in with pain or they can't sleep or incontinence and we think of a medication that might help, but it all accumulates and can start to cause some, some particular problems. And, and this re risk really increases as the number of um, medications exceeds five and then really, really increases once it gets up over about eight. And there's some particular medications we have to think about, the benzodiazepines and other sedative hypnotics, antipsychotics, hypoglycemic agents, antithrombotic agents, uh, antihypertensives, and antianginal agents. In combination, well, in single, but in combination, you're looking at confusion, postural hypotension, um, uh, hypoglycemia, so real risk of falls, real risk of, of becoming unwell. So we should be looking at trying to discontinue some of these medications when it might have been appropriate in the past, but it's no longer valid. Um, the risk of harm is, is outweighing the, the, the benefits, um, and we're just starting to get into a into a bit of a slippery slope of medication. I mean, on this, the college um, published a polypharmacy and deprescribing policy brief um, 
18 months ago or so, and it's, it's well worth picking up and, and incorporating into your practice. Thank you, Richard. We were going to now talk about a New Zealand Dermatology Society guideline, and that is don't prescribe oral antifungal therapy for suspected nail fungus without confirmation of a fungal nail infection. Lynn, I wonder if you could talk to our listeners around the background around the rationale for this recommendation, please. Uh, yes, Louise. So about half of the nails that uh, are suspected of having fungal infections don't actually have fungal infections. Other nail conditions, such as nail dystrophies or um, psoriasis, may look similar in appearance. So it's really important that we get an accurate diagnosis before beginning treatment. And particularly, um, the treatments for nail fungus, the oral agents, do have a range of side effects and can be uh, interfered with or interfere with themselves other medications. So it's pretty critical that the disease is accurately diagnosed so that the correct treatment can be given. Perfect. Richard, talking about opioid drugs now and in the treatment of migraine, they suggest not using opioids unless it's an extremely rare circumstance. Have you found this guidance useful? For me, this guidance wasn't especially useful because I can't remember the last time I've treated migraines with opioids and and we have to reflect that some of these um, recommendations are international recommendations and I'm not sure how many GPs would be routinely prescribing uh, opioids for migraines. I think we're pretty aware that it's a, a slippery slope but it is a good reminder. Uh, it, there are more effective treatments for migraine than giving opioids and these are uh, potentially uh, addictive drugs that can lead, of course, into analgesia headache. So you start treating one condition uh, and then you cause another through your treatment. So it may be appropriate if there's some issues with uh, coexisting disease or pregnancy that means you can't use migraine-specific treatments uh, or when other treatments have failed. Um, so you'd kind of consider an opioid as a, as a rescue therapy in those situations. Um, really limit the use if you are going to be using opioids to nine days per month or fewer to avoid the medication overuse headache. And don't forget, if someone's coming in with lots of recurrent migraine headaches, look at some other ways of managing that between either it may be medication prophylaxis or dietary advice or sleep or alcohol uh, advice or uh, treatment of their, their neck issues. You know, there are many alternatives to, to giving uh, opioids for migraine or other headaches. Yes, some really good points there. Thank you. So, Lynn, we were going to talk about lower back pain and imaging. The guidance is don't perform imaging for patients with nonspecific acute lower back pain and no indicators for a serious cause for lower back pain. I wonder how you could, if you could talk to us, please, about this guidance. Ah, well, this is a subject dear to me, actually, imaging for low back pain. Um, low back pain is extremely common. In Australia, it's the third most common complaint seen by Australian general practitioners. And in a study in New Zealand published in 2014, the lifetime prevalence of low back pain was found to be as high as 87% and the point prevalence being 27%. So that's a lot of back pain. Now, most of that is not serious or significant. 
A simple classification places patients into three categories. Uh, low back pain associated with sciatica or spinal canal stenosis. Serious spinal canal pathology, such as cancer, infection, fracture, cardioquina syndrome. That only constitutes about 1% of GP presentations of low back pain. And then 90% of the presentations are nonspecific low back pain. So that tells us straight away that imaging is probably not going to be very useful. So when evaluating patients with uh, acute low back pain, often one of the uh, issues that comes up in discussion is whether uh, or not the patient should be investigated using imaging. And the question is, would imaging change the subsequent medical treatment for this patient? In most cases, that answer is no. So there are many uh, local guidelines, health pathways associated with this, uh, suggestions from ACC about what red flags for imaging are, and the sort of things we're talking about are um, the older patient, over at least 70 and maybe older, uh, trauma, corticosteroid therapy, female gender. These are risk factors for fracture. Uh, previous and current cancer increases the likelihood of cancer-related back pain. And, of course, some acute symptoms, fever, systemic symptoms, recent invasive procedure, or elevated CRP are seen in most, but not all, patients with discitis or epidural abscess. So those sorts of things, yes, maybe imaging is going to be helpful. Of course, new lower limb or bladder motor dysfunction increases the likelihood of cauda equina syndrome, and that's a medical emergency. That is not uh, something that one sits around and discusses the pros and cons of, a, of an x-ray, but that it would, the cauda equina symptoms are a medical emergency. So we're not saying that imaging should not be done, but there are very few circumstances in which it's indicated. And uh, lumbar spine x-rays particularly convey quite a lot of radiation to the patient. So that's a real disadvantage. I wonder if I could ask you both, please, what to do when our local pathways differ or international guidelines differs to the Choosing Wisely messages. What do we do then? Well, I think it's really important to remember that these are guidelines. These are um, an indication of what would seem the most reasonable thing to do or not do, as the case may be. Um, and so, as always, it comes down to that uh, individual clinical decision that the doctor makes with the patient about the way forward. So these are guidelines. I think most, most doctors are used to understanding the difference between a guideline and a, and a, and a protocol, for example. And then we go on to the local versus international question. And the, a lot of these uh, recommendations have come internationally, and they might have different resources available. They might have uh, different opinion on the best way to manage a condition within the evidence. So on the whole, I would go to the local pathway and expect it's going to be similar to a choosing wisely suggestion that the local pathway will have been reviewed for your uh, local conditions. Mm, yes, and I guess an example of that that um, has been pointed out uh, recently 
is the New Zealand Choose Wisely uh, recommendation from the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists uh, states quite clearly, do not perform population screening of women for ovarian cancer. Now, that seems like a very sensible recommendation because there is no evidence for appropriate population screening for ovarian cancer. Now, some people feel that that's a bit contrary to uh, some UK guidelines in which it's suggested that uh, the tumor marker CA125 could be measured in primary care. But the context in the UK, that measurement is suggested as a diagnostic text, text actually, when, it, when you look at it in the context of the guideline that it's in. The guidelines suggest that if a woman, especially over the age of 50, presents with a number of symptoms with a high frequency, so abdominal distension, early satiety, pelvic or abdominal pain, increased urinary urgency and frequency over 12 times per month, in the UK, it's suggested that that woman has a CA125 followed by pelvic ultrasound. My feeling would be in New Zealand, if a GP had a patient present with those symptoms, that's quite frequent, over 12 times a month for that constellation of symptoms, we would probably be considering a pelvic ultrasound as part of our diagnostic workup. So these are not incompatible, these guidelines. It's looking at how resources are and the availability of testing. And I think it's very clear that there are only certain things that we should be undertaking population screening for. Uh, it also um, makes me think, Lynn, that uh, the context of where these guidelines come from is is really useful as well. You mentioned in your preamble that uh, a lot of this uh, choosing wisely kicked off in the United States and Canada, and they've got very different availability of resources. Actually, GPs can be quite restrained in the and constrained in the resources that we get access to. So it's not as if we're ordering MRI scans and CTs willy-nilly. Um, so that sometimes we, we, we need to look at uh, that, that international context. Yes, I'd, I'd agree with that, actually. I'm, um, you may be able to tell from my accent, I'm from Canada originally, and some of my classmates and who are working in general practice in Canada have commented on um, the difficulties for them sometimes of obtaining um, ultrasound scans, interestingly. Um, they've, it's a lot easier for them to order MRIs for some reason in the places they work, and that skews the way things are investigated. So we're going to move on now to discuss the consumer arm of the campaign. How is choosing wisely relevant to the patients and how does it empower our patients? I wonder, Richard, if you could discuss this for us. Sure. There has been a strong public push both through the um, website and um, the uh, resources that can go out to doctors. So one of the, the key ones is being uh, the four questions poster. So you can put this on your wall, uh, staple, well, saddle tape it to your desk. Um, and there's four questions that we, we, we want the patient to think about. So one up, the first up is, do I really need this procedure? Uh, what are the risks? Are there safer and simpler options? What happens if I don't have this test? So it's priming the, the patient to 
to just come back with some questions. And I know we're really busy, and I know we get lots of uh, problems to deal with in 15 minutes. Um, but these are important considerations. In the same way that we we need to discuss side effects of medications, you need to try and talk about the side effects and consequences of tests. Um, next one we talk about is um, the advice around communicating with health professionals. So it's not just with us, but also if they're going off to see the orthopaedic surgeon who suggests a, a, um, a knee washout arthroscopy, which we know doesn't make any difference whatsoever. So is, is getting them to ask other health professionals and priming the patients to, to, to I guess, create a certain amount of personal autonomy. Yeah, I was going to chip in there with um, maybe a fifth question. It's okay to ask, to try to give patients that, that power, although there is a power imbalance when a patient sees a consultant. I mean, there's, we know there's already a power imbalance in general practice, but gone on to a consultant, patients sometimes feel that they've got to follow every bit of advice. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't follow the advice, but I think we should be empowering them to ask, to feel it's all right to ask. I think a, a really good example that, that um, gets talked about and, and we should be asked, and if I'm not asked, I'll raise it with, with parents themselves, is fever in children. So... You know, increasing evidence that is now becoming, I think, somewhat more widely known, is that is that fever is a protective uh, response that the body makes to fight pathogens. Um, the viruses don't don't uh, replicate as well, and the bacteria don't replicate as well when it's hotter. And our immune system and immunoglobulins and so on work better uh, when we're a bit hotter. So we're trying to get patients to to not fear the fever. Uh, that sure, if your child's really miserable and achy and headachy, then then analgesia is what you're treating them with, and it's not really about treating the fever. So um, once you have that discussion, you can start to talk about well, what's the what's the safest way of providing analgesia for um, for your your kitty and. Um, Paracetamol is generally safer than ibuprofen. Um, you need to be working up the correct dose, uh, dependent on the on the child's weight, and, and ideally you can give the the parents a, a dose weight chart. Um, don't give paracetamol and ibuprofen at the same time. Um, and I don't think it's really used very often these days. But just remember that that aspirin in the in younger uh, kids and adolescents can lead to, to Ray's syndrome, which is very rare, um, but very, very nasty. Um, and then, yeah, the, the fever in a child, almost always a, um, a viral infection, is the discussion about antibiotics. And I think antibiotics are a particularly important thing to discuss. I mean, we know that there's real risk of uh, moving into the post-antibiotic age, and we've only been in the antibiotic age for less than 100 years. And if we start losing these really, really important tools through overuse, then um, we've certainly done a disservice to the, to the generations uh, following. And, and it's also interesting, we often feel pressured to give antibiotics. We feel that's what the patient expects. But in fact, a number of studies show that very often it's not what the patient expects. What they're wanting is an explanation and a discussion. So if you can have your uh, consultation open such that 
people can ask you these questions and that's um, and, and express what they want, then that's going to be really powerful. Um, and then the other worries that people have might be, say, about the risk of uh, febrile convulsions. Uh, but the evidence is pretty clear that using paracetamol and ibuprofen doesn't reduce the chance of the child having a febrile convulsion. So those are some of the discussions that come up about, um, about fever. I mean, the other things that get raised is um, at what point should parents worry? When should they bring kids in? So under three months, temperature above 38, you really need to be checked. I mean, it can be quite subtle, the signs of um, sepsis in the, in the really young infant. And older children over the temperature of 40 is, is a general uh, marker of, of higher risk of serious infection. And we know the, the, the general um, concerns about irritability and rash and floppiness and drowsiness and poor colour and so on, that you should um, uh, take the child to the doctor. And I think just the, the bottom line key message there would be if a parent is worried about their child, whether or not they have a fever, whether or not they um, have specific symptoms, if they're worried, if they feel their child is un unwell, then the parent is often in a, the best position to recognise that unwellness and they should take them to the doctor to be checked. Yeah, some good points there. And there's a beautiful uh, handout section at the bottom of the resource section so you can actually give the patient something to take away, which I think, um, again, emphasises the point of all the of the things that you've spoken about and um, it's good to have those sorts of things put on the fridge for the middle of the night when things aren't going perhaps the way they should be. So we're going to talk briefly about um, urinary tract symptoms and antibiotic use. I wonder, Lynn, if you could um, cover this for us. Sure. Antibiotics, of course, are medications that kill bacteria and we often are in the position of prescribing antibiotics to treat urinary tract infections. Now, also, we know that many people get urinary tract infection treatment with antibiotics, even though they don't have the symptoms that are consistent. So remembering that the symptoms are a burning feeling with urination, so dysuria, and a strong urge to urinate often, frequency. So those two symptoms associated with some signs on perhaps a urine dipstick may be enough to determine that antibiotics are required to treat those symptoms. But antibiotics don't help if there are no urinary tract infection symptoms, and antibiotics do not help prevent UTIs, they do not help bladder control, and they do not help memory problems or balance in older people who do not have urinary tract infections. It is quite common for older people to have some bacteria present in the urine, but without symptoms, the recommendation is do not treat. So only a change in symptoms with bacteria in the urine for older people would be uh, recommended for treatment. Now, there are some segments of the population who should receive treatment if there's bacteria in the urine, and that's pregnant women or people that are about to have uh, surgery relating to the urinary tract 
if there's bacteria detected in the urine sample from those populations, then definitely they should have antibiotics. So at urinary tract infections, if people have them and are treated, they usually don't need another test to, as, to find out if the, if the infection is gone. They only would be tested or treated again if the symptoms recurred. Now, that's in general for the population. There may be certain circumstances where a, a patient's doctor may recommend follow-up um, testing. And remember, again, that antibiotics can cause other problems. They're not solely to just there to treat the UTI. Occasionally, uh, people can get diarrhea. They can uh, develop vaginal thrush. They may uh, cause uh, excess growth of more drug-resistant bacteria. So it's preferable to be using uh, the appropriate antibiotics in the appropriate length of time to help uh, treat a urinary tract infection, and no more. Uh, these things about uh, the use of antibiotics and also some excellent suggestions about uh, non-pharmacological management of urinary tract infections are all available in a patient resource. So that means uh, that it's a great thing to be able to give out to patients to help them with understanding how to manage the urinary symptoms. So to conclude our podcast today, let's discuss our take-home messages. Lynn, would you like to start? Well, I guess the uh, main things that we've covered in this podcast is uh, talking a bit about choosing wisely. It's a global initiative, and now New Zealand is included and making good progress. The idea is that conversations should be occurring between health professionals and patients to help make the best decisions about treatment options and therefore leading to the best patient outcomes. And the recommendations are relevant across the care spectrum, right through from primary care, secondary, tertiary care, that if we all work together in these, with these recommendations, that's going to lead to the best outcomes. And um, following on from that, I think it's important to realise that, of course, these are guidelines. Um, the clinical context of the patient in front of you and, and the resources that you have available is, is critical to decision making. But guidelines are helpful. They, they can show you a direction to go in. It's not all about the doctors and nurses and midwives and pharmacists. It's also about the, the patients and consumers. So um, if you go to the Choosing Wisely website, you can see resources there that you can uh, either old school, print off and give to patients, or newer school, cut and paste the address and send it to them by text or on, on the patient portal. And it is evidence-based recommendations. And in terms of trying to get a little bit more um a few more questions from your patients and a bit more publicity for this. There are posters and handouts that you can download from the Choosing Wisely website. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points for listening to this podcast, fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.